We'll be once again in the book of Hosea. And I, like Tim, as I looked at the passage that was given this morning, could not help but rejoice in the providence of God. I think he's given us an awesome passage for an Easter Sunday morning. I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 11, the entire chapter. Our focus this morning will be on verses 8 through 11, uh, because I do not believe that verse 12 of chapter 11 belongs there. I think it's the Hebrew Bible. It, that's where chapter 12 starts. So I'm going to read 1 through 11. And then I've asked uh, Malcolm if he would pray for the ministry of the word. Hebrew, or Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king, because they refuse to return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels, so my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from the Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we come in this scripture today, there is so much that uh, we can liken to our own selves and be very disturbing to us all those mark um, preaches this, this word to you. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will be upon him. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and know how to apply this word to our day-to-day living, that we might live lives more pleasing to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scene is a courtroom. The prosecutor and judge stands before the accused. And as he looks down at them and to those who look on, he explains to them, these are my sons. And my job here is to pronounce the final arguments for their sin, for their wrongdoing, and to sentence them. I love these, my sons. 
I was the one who taught them to walk. I was the one who, who lifted them up and, and held them to my cheek. I was the one who helped their hurts get better, but they did not know it. The more I taught them, the more they turned from me. The more I warned them, the more they went after other voices, and they followed those voices more than they followed mine. And they have decided that I am no longer to be their father. And so the sentence I pronounce upon them for their sin is they will be given over to the hands of those whom they have not known. They will be given over to people who can do as they wish with them, to enslave them, to torture them, yes, even to kill them and consume them because they will not turn to me. They are bent in their ways. And so I pronounce this How? How can I give you up? I named you special names because they would depict my relationship to you. How can I surrender you and give you over? How can I make you like those who will be forgotten in the annals of history, who, who will, no one will miss? Their death means nothing to me but you. All the compassion, all the feeling that I have in my heart for you. When I think of the justice that I would bring to you, what comes as a flame in my bosom is all the reasons for mercy, 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 and they grow as a greater flame within me. When we read this passage in Hosea, that's what we're expecting to happen, is that he would look at the sin. He, we've, for now, from chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 11, we, we've heard God over and over talk about the guilt, the sin, the betrayal, the, the, the idolatrous priests, the rogue princes, the murderous kings, and the sentencing that he brings here, the sword, the destruction, the, the death of the young people, the loss of their king, the exile. We're expecting that to happen, and as God prepares to bring down the gavel to say, let it be so, his mercy stops him. It's as if he drops the gavel out of his hands and says, how, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? The audacity of mercy, how daring, how bold, how original, how personal. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? He's not speaking of the fortified cities. He's not thinking of gate bars. He's thinking of people. He's thinking of his dear children, his covenant people. Oh, Ephraim, the name means my fruitful child. He speaks that name tenderly. How can I give you up? In Israel, yes, even though I named you he who strives with God, it was to remind you and me that you would be a mighty one before me if you would be subdued and you would be obedient to me. 
How can I surrender you? And it's literally surrender. I will, it means he would give them up to the enemy to do everything they please to do to them. Kill them, enslave them, sell them as slaves to others. It's if this, the how here is a how of lamentation. When I, how, how can I do this thing? How can I grant this to yours and my enemies? And the second set of hows, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? It, it, it's almost a how of deliberation over the, the, the implications. What are we speaking of here? Well, maybe you like me, you had to look up. Well, where's Adma? Where's Zeboim? They were the cities that were destroyed along with the two that we do know, Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what Deuteronomy says they were like after it. All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it. And God is saying, when I, how can I make you like that? How can I make my people like that? Cast aside in the refuse and the, the unsown, unproductive, forgotten history like Adma and Zeboim. The thoughts in God, my heart is turned over within me. You've had a churning of the heart, haven't you? Have you had when your stomach does the, the gymnastics? His thoughts of extinction of his people causes a revolt within him. His anguish of choice. We see God anguishing over these things. How can I turn you over? There's a recoiling at these thoughts in his mind. My compassions are kindled. There, my sense, my compassionate sense of comforting you and guiding you and consoling you is, is growing warmer and warmer. The, the more these thoughts of how I would show you mercy, it's like they're being laid on, there's a little fire glowing, and they're like brands that he lays on the fire, and he says, the more I think about those mercies, the more this flame grows, and my warm resolve is kindled that I would have mercy on you. Justice says, let them be given up. They're incorrigible. They are not obedient. They are what you call them, God, stubborn and rebellious people. They deserve this fate. They deserve to be handed over and exiled. Ephraim ought to be utterly ruined and devastated. And mercy says, these are the children of the covenant. These are the people in which you poured out your life, in which you brought them tenderly out of Egypt, and you brought them to a land filled with milk and honey, and you, you taught them, you gave them your law, you showed them what you were like, you, were, you led them out by a prophet. You remember Abraham, you remember Isaac, you remember Jacob and the wonders that you did before them. Sin brought chaos and confusion to man, but your mercy can bring glory out of sin. And God renders the verdict. I will not pronounce that sentence that I was speaking of before. He says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. It is not my wrath that will be kindled, he says. 
it will be my mercy. And we know that the northern kingdom was, fell into Assyrian hands in 722 B.C. And as if he is saying, yes, they will be corrected, but I will not utterly destroy them. Yes, they will come under that punishment. They will come under that which they need to see, but I will not destroy them. And here we see the depths of what the old Hebrew language calls the bowels of God. His mercy kindled for his people because of his purpose for them. And yet we know that when God sent his only son to die, he did not say, how will I give him up? That awesome passage in Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering and earlier it says but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him justice requires satisfaction for sin does it not but we know that that satisfaction can only come to us by the death of one by the shedding of blood and yet for us can it be done without Christ no it cannot be done without Christ being made a curse for sin the mercy in action the mercy of God toward his people justice is served because one has paid the penalty for sin and the mercy of God continues in action even as Jesus explains. On that very day, it says, on the very day when he rose from the grave, he met two men on the road to Emmaus. And they began talking and they were amazed at his teaching. And just before he, he leaves them, he, and, and it's amazing of Christ, the, the one who came as the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, was crucified and he was killed in the city of Jerusalem. And you would think, you would think that the justice of God would say, I never want you to be in that city again. But what does Jesus say? I have told you these things on the way to Emmaus because there will now be a proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sin proclaimed among the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you see the depth of the mercy of God? In that city where he was crucified, in that place where they should have known better, that gathering of men who had supposedly looked into the scriptures and had seen the Messiah and missed him and crucified the Lord of glory, and yet the mercy of God says, I will proclaim mercy among the nations starting right here. And we see how God can do this. The explanation comes in the second half of verse 9, for, the little word for, it, it, it announces a because, because of this, because when I explain this to you, you will see my commitment to my covenant people that, that I've, I've given to them as my special relationship to them for I am God and not man. 
You will see my character, my dispositions, my behavior is not as man's behavior, for I am God and not man. Man's passions overpower his compassion. Man's passions take him over. But God says, I am Lord of my anger. Man is either like Lamech, the one who had this vicious retaliation in his mind and his purpose, or man would say of Israel, they get what they deserve, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Exact your punishment, God. But God says, I am able to honor both justice and practice mercy. I am loving. I am tender. I am sweet toward my people. This is my disposition. I am God and not man. When man is all disquiet and there is turmoil within him, nothing Nothing seems to hold him back. No one is free. Even if that turmoil is not caused by your family, we tend to take it out on our family, do we not? We tend to have this anyone and everyone in my way mentality. But God says, I am infinite. I am self-sufficient and nothing causes me to have turmoil and disquiet within me. The manifestation of God's mercy to us, rather than misery and destruction, it comes to us in his power. The power of God is manifested in his mercy. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 1? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. There's the power of God. It's in his mercy. We would say, justice, God says, my power is displayed perfectly in my mercy toward those whom I will have mercy on. Why? Why? He says, he gives us another great I am here. I am the Holy One in your midst. Six little words says it all of God. The Holy One in your midst. This is what the theologians typically call the transcendence of God. As one has said, this is the godness of God. He is holy. He is incomparable. He is unique. He is separate from. The word holy is separate. He is separate and unique from all. And he is the holy one. He is that well, I'll read Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, he says, says the Holy One. There is one God who is holy and one only. And he says, I am the Holy One. Bart, we have talked about Karl Bart, and I'm not here to defend his theology but he says this beautiful section on the deity of God, the holiness of God. He says, quote, A God overwhelmingly lofty and distant, strange, yes, even holy other. Holy, H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. There is no one like him. There is no other. 
And we tend to think of Isaiah 6, do we not? The, the holy, holy, holy that the angels sang. And we think of God's power and his glory and his awesomeness. And I, that is here. But I think in, the, in this context, in, in the context of Hosea 11 and all the things we know about God and his wrath and the, the justice that he's looking at here, the, the focus is on what is probably the core thought of holiness, and that is God's purity. God is of too pure to look upon sin, to countenance sin. But there is that steadfastness in him, the consistency in him, the control in him. That is, to me, the essence of transcendence. He is transcendent in, because he is spirit and because he is self-existent. There is no lack of self-control. There is no lack of concentration on his purposes. He is infinite. He's not limited by space or time. Ephesians 1, where we were looking this morning, he works all things by the counsel of his will. See, there's no limitation there. There's no restrictions on him as, as it is for man. And he is immutable. Essentially, he is totally consistent with himself. Always active. He's never detached. He's never indifferent. He's always engaged in his purposes. And there is a word that theologians call simplicity. All his thoughts and actions involve the whole of him. <laughs> Unlike men, right? We're scatterbrained. But all of his thoughts and actions involve the whole of him. What does Jesus say? How does he help us picture this? He tells his disciples, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. See, even that detail. He is, everything happens with the whole of him. And God is impassable. Everything he feels and does is deliberate and within the unity of his own being. J.I. Packer says, quote, God is never our victim in the sense that we make him suffer where he had not first chosen to suffer. See, everything is within his own being and with his own desire and within himself. This is the transcendence of God. Yes, it's gloryful, glory, and it's powerful, and it's awesome, and yet it is pure, and it is consistent, and he is in control. And we, Bart, I think by many, it's taken to task that he focused too much on the transcendence of God, that God is wholly other. And again, I'm not here to debate his theology, but I know that there's no debate in God. Because look what he says about himself in Hosea 11. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. See, there's the transcendence of God and at the same time, the imminence of God. He is an... Again, it ties into who Christ is. The angel said to, to Joseph, when, when Mary conceives and she has a child, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Holy One in your midst, transcendent and imminent at the same time. What an awesome God. This is the message. It's, it's simple, it's, but it's awesome. The Holy One in your midst. He's present. And he's working. He's engaged for your good. 
He, he discloses his feelings. He, he shows what his dispositions are. He, he shows his loyalty. And he shows his compassion. So his holiness is engaged in his eminence. His holiness directs how he acts with his people, how he's engaged for their good, how he's teaching them, I am faithful and I am just and I am merciful. And we see in scriptures over and over the revelation of God's holiness is in his demonstration of his grace. We see it in the scriptures proclaimed in Isaiah 41 where he says, I look upon this people and there are people who are, are thirsty, their throats are parched, their, their tongues are cracking and I am the one, the Holy One, who leads them to fountains of living water, to fountains and paths and ponds of water. It is I, the Holy One, who brings them grace. And in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches us to pray, not the Lord's Prayer, but the Saint's Prayer, he begins by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, holy be your name. And everything that follows, the grace of daily bread, forgiveness of sins, of being prevented from temptations, being delivered from evil. Where do they come from? From the holiness of God in the grace that he demonstrates to his people. The transcendence of God and the imminence of God in one. His holiness demonstrated by his grace. The audacity of grace to do these things for sinners and here's the exercise of faith, is it not? That you will look at God as God. That you will look as God, at God as God and not man. If he were like us, do you have any salvation? No. My sins are great, you say. My, my sins are terrible. I'm like David. My sins are ever before me. His mercy is greater still. We're unworthy. We're worms and no men. <laughs> Unworthiness of man does not derail the mercy of God. Whew. The Holy One in your midst. And here, again, the eye of faith when you read the scriptures, when you, when you seek him in the word and by prayer, we ought to be as the disciples, the same reaction they had. Remember on that day when they had been visited by Christ after his resurrection, they were all huddled in the upper room. But one of them wasn't there, right? Thomas, he wasn't there. And when Thomas appears a couple of days later, they go to him and say, we have seen the Lord. The eye of faith looks at the scriptures and reads and studies and meditates on them and prays before God and turns away from this book as if they were the disciples and say, we have seen the Lord. We have seen him as he is because he has revealed himself in his word to us. So we must look to God as God. And yet, 
And yet, that God, the Holy One in our midst, what does He do? Verse 10, they will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he says, he will roar, but they will walk after him. The divine authority is expressed in that roar. They, the scattered people, the people that he is sending off to exile, and as he has already prophesied in chapter 3 of Hosea, right in the preface where Hosea and, and, and Gomer are going through all that stress in their marriage, at the end of chapter 3 he says, they will return to and seek the Lord and his goodness. And here we see it. No longer are they going from him. Or as Gomer said, I will go after my lovers. Now what we see, they will go after the Lord. No longer will they be bent on turning away from him. They will be bent on walking after him. And he roars like a lion. This lion that we see in scriptures, the lion of Judah, Jesus is called. It's a display of his divine authority. This roar that they rebelled against once now will be a roar that they will respond to. And the roar is not of ferocity, but a roar of sovereignty, a roar of authority. In the animal kingdom, it is said that the other animals recognize the king of the jungle by his roar. And even other animals that we would assume to be aggressive and ferocious, they respect that roar. And even in the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 46 and verse 6, he says, The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted. Those who are sinners, the wicked will flee at the sound of his voice. But with that same roar, it is a call for his sheep to come homeward. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, they say. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The same voice that totters the nations calls his saints home. And what a homecoming it is. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. They're not the silly doves of chapter 7, flitting around to all the other countries. They are the doves that come trembling for a purpose and straight. The wanderers he talked about in chapter 9, the, the, the sentence upon Israel, they will be wanderers on the face of the earth. Now will be a chastened people returning home. We sang this morning, when, when we think of the cross, when we think of the cross where Christ died for our sins, doesn't it make you tremble, tremble, tremble? They will come with a holy fear, trembling to their God. Trembling like birds, trembling like doves, from Egypt and Assyria, reminding them, yes, there was a punishment for which they had to pay. There were the reminder of the necessity of that punishment, and yet there is a call homeward to their own houses, to a resettlement of their devastated cities. And when God calls us to a house, we know that house is the best house, that house is the most comfortable house, that house is the safest house. That is where he calls his people to. 
He is God and not man. He delights to do these things for his people. And what do we see in this passage? Grace abounding. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? The apostle asks. May it never be, he says. May it never be. If God could destroy us for our sin, but his mercies, like firebrands set in a fire that ignites a warm resolve in his heart that burst into flame of all the reasons for mercy toward us, how can we sin against so great a mercy? Present to your own soul reasons to not sin. He has laid on that fire reasons to bring us mercy. You lay on your own soul reasons to not sin against that mercy. Is anyone tempted to bitterness, to rage and anger against another? Be reminded. Mercy, forbearance, grace are the image of God. I am God and not man. But he calls us, does he not, in the scriptures? He says to us, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy as I am holy. When God says to us, I am the Holy One in your midst, we ought to have a big therefore in our hearts. Therefore, behave accordingly. It requires of us that we pursue holiness and righteousness of life. The audacity of mercy, the audacity of grace, the audacity of a long-suffering God that he would bring mercy to us when we deserved punishment, when we deserved to be handed over, surrendered, for whatever the enemy would do to us. Be audacious yourselves. Pray for mercy. Be bold in your prayer. Be daring in your prayer. Be after him. Seek him, as he has already said in the previous chapter. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because God is light. He is holy and pure is what it means. And it's all that makes him an object of awe and adoration and dread. That holy fear that we ought to have before him. But be audacious in pursuing him. Be audacious as mercy is audacious. Grab hold of him. Pray to him. Seek him. Ask him to fill your heart with a like mercy because remember, he has said, for, for I am not man, I am God, the Holy One in your midst. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are glorious. You are worthy to be honored and praised in all manner of throwing ourselves down before you. There is none like you. 
You are the Holy One. And yet, Father, you have come in our midst. We praise you and we thank you and we rejoice in this, that you have done so. Please, please build your church that she may proclaim you, that she may worship you, that she may glorify you in all that she does. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord God cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints.